York. This is Democracy Now! We're going to continue to press our Israeli partners to closely review its policies and practices on rules of engagement. He still has not uh, taken action. He does not, he continues to ignore the importance of this case. As Israel admits for the first time, one of its soldiers may have shot dead Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akla when she covered an Israeli raid on the Janine refugee camp. The U.S. says it'll pressure Israel to re-examine its rules of engagement. Her family says that's not enough. We'll speak with Shireen's niece, Lina Abu Akla who's calling for a meeting with President Biden and wants the U.S. to conduct an independent investigation. Then, in a victory for Trump, a federal judge he appointed has granted his request for a special master to review classified documents the FBI sees from Mar-a-Lago. We'll look at this and other investigations into Trump, from the January 6th Capitol insurrection to alleged financial crimes to election interference with the nation's Ellie Mistel, author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. And we continue to remember the life and legacy of the author and activist Barbara Ehrenreich. But I think the real issue here is the mainstream media's, corporate media's theory of poverty, which they can't help but come back to, is that it is a character failure. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The International Atomic Energy Agency is calling for a safety and security protection zone to be immediately set up around the Russian-held Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine in order to avoid a nuclear disaster at Europe's largest nuclear power plant. The IAEA issued a report Tuesday on the dire conditions at the plant after investigators visited the site last week. Russia and Ukraine have accused each other of attacking the plant, which has been controlled by Russia since March. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi spoke Tuesday. The physical uh, attack, wittingly or unwittingly, uh, the hits that this facility has uh, received and that I could personally see and uh, assess together with my experts is simply um, uh, unacceptable. We are playing with fire, and something very, very catastrophic could take place. The Washington Post is reporting a highly classified document detailing a foreign government's military defenses, including its nuclear capabilities, was found by the FBI during its search of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. The Post reports some of the documents uncovered were so sensitive that even many senior national security officials would not normally have access to them. The FBI has also revealed it found 48 empty folders marked classified during its search. A state judge in New Mexico has removed a county commissioner from power for taking part in the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The judge ruled Otero County Commissioner Coy Griffin had violated the 14th Amendment by taking part in what the judge ruled to be an insurrection against the U.S. government. The judge also barred Griffin from holding any future state or federal position. Griffin, who founded the group Cowboys for Trump, is the first insurrectionist to face such a penalty. 
NBC News has obtained surveillance video showing a Republican official in Coffee County, Georgia, escorting operatives tied to Donald Trump into an elections office on January 7th, 2021, the same day that a data breach occurred at the site. The local official seen in the video is Kathy Latham, who was one of the fake electors in Georgia who claimed Trump had won the state. Latham is seen escorting consultants who were working with Trump attorney Sidney Powell. A day after the visit, one of the men seen in the video wrote to Powell saying, quote, Sidney, everything went smoothly yesterday with the Coffee County collection, unquote. A separate surveillance video shows Jeff Logan, the CEO of the company Cyber Ninjas, also visited the elections office along with another security consultant named Jeffrey Lenberg. Both men are under investigation for a breach of voting machines in Michigan. Former Trump adviser Steve Bannon is expected to surrender Thursday in New York, where he faces state charges for defrauding donors to an anti-immigrant nonprofit called We Build the Wall. He's accused of personally pocketing donations that were given to privately fund sections of a barrier wall to be built along the U.S.-Mexico border. Bannon was first charged by federal prosecutors in 2020, but then he received a pardon from Donald Trump. That's for federal charges. What he faces now are state charges. It's believed he pocketed something like $1 million. In Massachusetts, the state's attorney general, Maura Healey, won the Democratic nomination for Governor Tuesday. If she wins in November, she would become the first woman elected governor in Massachusetts. She also becomes the second open lesbian to win a gubernatorial primary this year, joining Democrat Tina Kotek in Oregon. The Advocate reports the two could make history in November as the first out lesbians to be elected governors in the United States. In Massachusetts, Maura Healy will face off against the Trump-endorsed Jeff Deal, who won the Republican gubernatorial race on Tuesday. Michael Regan, the head of the Environmental Protection Agency, is heading to Jackson, Mississippi today, where a massive water crisis has left 150,000 people without drinking water. While water pressure has been restored in the city, an order to boil water to make it safe to drink remains in place. This comes as Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves is floating the idea of privatizing Jackson's water, a move opposed by many. Civil rights attorney Sherilyn Eiffel tweeted, Beware privatization. Eiffel is the former head of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, which has warned water privatization can jeopardize, quote, the human right to affordable, clean water. And temperatures in Sacramento, California, reached 116 degrees Fahrenheit Tuesday, making it the hottest day ever recorded in California's capital as a record-breaking heat wave continues to scorch California. Some cities have broken previous daily heat records by 10 degrees. Officials urge residents Tuesday to cut back on their energy use to reduce the risk of power outages during the heat wave as energy use soared to new highs. 4,000 firefighters in California are now battling 14 large fires across California. At least four people have died in fires since this weekend. In news from Brazil, an indigenous activist with the group Forest Guardians was shot dead Saturday in the northeast of Brazil. The Guardian reports Janildo Oliveira Guajajara 
is the sixth member of the group to be murdered since 2016. The group was formed to help protect the Brazilian rainforest. In health news, new research shows more than 10.5 million children have lost a parent or primary caretaker due to the COVID-19 pandemic. A study published Tuesday found the hardest-hit areas were Southeast Asia and Africa. Here in the United States, it's estimated 250,000 children lost one or both parents. The study appears in the journal JAMA Pediatrics. In media news, a Russian court has revoked the license of the independent newspaper Novaya Gazeta, which is edited by the Nobel Peace Prize winner Dmitry Muratov. The move effectively bans the newspaper from operating. Muratov spoke against the ruling Tuesday. The decision is a political hit job that has no legal basis whatsoever. We were in court for allegedly not handing over some documents 20 years ago, when in reality it is absolutely obvious to everyone what's behind this. Again, that's Dmitry Muratov, who just won the Nobel Peace Prize. Russian President Vladimir Putin will reportedly meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping in Uzbekistan next week on what would be Xi's first foreign trip in two and a half years. The two leaders will meet at a summit organized by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. In news from China, at least 74 people have died in an earthquake in Sichuan province. Twenty-six people are reported missing. In Uvalde, Texas, students returned to classes Tuesday for the first time since the May 24th mass school shooting, which left 19 fourth graders and their two teachers dead. No classes are being held at the site of the shooting, Robb Elementary School, which is slated to be demolished. On Tuesday, Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez visited Uvalde as students returned to classes. Families are upset. They're frustrated, rightfully so. Um, there are still kids that go to trauma uh, therapy every day. Uh, there were kids in Rob that were in adjacent classrooms that were stuck in those classrooms. They're never going to be the same again. The people of Texas need to understand that, that these families are never going to be the same again. And if we don't do something, this could happen in your community. This comes as the Austin American Statesman is reporting five officers with the Texas Department of Public Safety are now under investigation for their role in the response to the Uvalde school shooting. Two of the five have already been suspended with pay pending the investigation, which is being carried out by the Texas Inspector General. The electronic cigarette maker Juul has reached a tentative agreement to pay nearly $440 million to settle a probe by 33 states into the company's marketing practices targeting underage buyers. The company has been widely blamed for the surge in teenage vaping. In labor news, teachers in Seattle have voted to authorize a strike beginning today, forcing the city to cancel the first day of school. The Seattle Education Association says 95 percent of teachers supported the strike in a recent vote. Key demands by teachers include better support for special education and multilingual programs in smaller class sizes. 
And members of the U.S. women's soccer team have signed a historic collective bargaining agreement with U.S. soccer, guaranteeing equal pay for the men and women teams. The agreement comes six years after players on the U.S. women's national soccer team filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. In 2019, players filed a federal lawsuit over unfair pay practices. Women's soccer superstar Megan Rapinoe praised the new agreement. I mean, it's so good. It's just like such a proud moment for all of us, um, thinking back to all of the players that have come through, um, just the work that was done specifically on the CBA, but um, really before that to lay the groundwork and just knowing how much we put into it, um, you know, how much effort we put into it and just that, you know, the same never say die ad to we had on the field. Um, that's the same vibe we brought to this. So it's super proud moment. Um, really excited for everyone and, and really excited to see where this pushes the game on. That's soccer star Megan Rapino, And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, Israel has, a fir- for the first time, admitted one of its soldiers— may have been responsible for the death of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akha, who was shot in the head May 11th while covering an Israeli raid on the Jenin refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. Israel said Monday Abu Akla may have been accidentally hit by Israeli troops' gunfire after they came under fire from Palestinian fighters. But eyewitness accounts and videos of the area where Shireen was killed do not show a gun battle. She also wore body armor and a helmet clearly labeled press. Investigations by The New York Times, CNN, The Washington Post and other media outlets also challenge the official Israeli version of Abu Akhla's killing. The Times said there were, quote, no armed Palestinians near her when she was shot, unquote. In Ramallah, Al Jazeera's West Bank bureau chief rejected the Israeli claims about the killing of Shireen Abu Akla, its longtime reporter. It is clear that they are trying to perpetuate ambiguity and deception on the one hand, while at the same time clear themselves of wrongdoing by claiming that there was an exchange of fire. These are all lies, because all the accounts and videos and witnesses disprove their claims. Meanwhile, Israel still says it will not launch a criminal probe into Shireen Abu Akhla's killing. The Biden administration continues to face backlash over its response to her death, with U.S. officials accused of trying to cover for Israel. U.S. State Department Deputy Spokesperson Vedant Patel spoke Tuesday. We're going to continue to press our Israeli partners to closely review its policies and practices on rules of engagement and consider additional steps to mitigate the risk of civilian harm, protect journalists, and prevent similar tragedies in the future. On Tuesday, Democratic U.S. Senator Chris Van Holland of Maryland dismissed the allegations from the Israeli army that Abu Akhla was killed in the midst of a gunfight between Israeli soldiers and Palestinians, tweeting, quote, the crux of the defense in this IDF report is that a soldier was returning fire from militants, but investigations found no such firing at the time. 
Maryland Senator Van Hollen and Abu Akhla's family are calling for the U.S. to launch an independent investigation. For more, we're joined in New York by Lena Abu Akhla, the niece of Shireen. Uh, Lena, welcome to Democracy Now! First, our condolences to you and your family. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you for having me. So you're here in New York and you've been in Washington. You just spoke at the National Press Club. Can you respond to Israel's report saying that they may well likely have accidentally uh, the Israeli so an Israeli soldier unidentified um, killed your um, aunt? Can you talk about that report and what you're calling for? Yes, of course. You know, that statement uh, did nothing other than obscure the truth and avoid responsibility uh, and accountability, as a matter of fact. And uh, time and time again, we've seen how Israel is unwilling to hold itself accountable for killings. And as a family and as her niece, we are infuriated um, we were not expecting a statement uh, from the Israeli government, the Israeli army, because we have seen how over the past months they've been uh, changing the narrative and shifting the narrative. Uh, here is what we know. We know the facts. We know that Shirin was in Jenin covering a raid. She identified herself to the army um, in addition to her colleagues who were all wearing press vests and a protective helmet. You know, we're talking here about the uh, the most advanced uh, army, uh, one of the most technologically advanced armies, and um, they still were able to aim precisely in the area right beneath her head and uh, shoot her. In addition, there were continuous fires right after uh, they killed my aunt. Even when they were trying to help her, they were still being uh, fired at. So to us, it's the statement is nothing but uh, obscuring the truth, and it shows ambiguity, and they still are trying to escape any form of responsibility. And I, I wanted to ask you, Lena, this uh, the fact that uh, clearly this was a, an accurate hit by a soldier, most most likely using a telescopic sight. He, he could he could shoot your aunt, but then supposedly not see that she was uh, uh, that she uh, had was clearly uh, marked with the words press on her. You know, um the first—it wasn't—there were, there were press, uh, press written in the front and the back. You know, they were identifying themselves before they were—before uh, they started—they were about to report. And there was—the area was very quiet when they were there. And we've seen videos. We've seen uh, Palestinian eyewitnesses who were in the scene. So, for us, that is nothing but— uh, uh, but again, obscuring the truth and trying to spread disinformation. Uh, Shirin was a very well-known journalist. She was reporting from the West Bank, from Jerusalem, for the past 25 years. There's no way that she was misidentified. And you, you, you said that your, uh, that your aunt was killed twice, once in Jenin and once in Jerusalem. Could you explain further? 
Yes, I always say this. Shirin was killed twice, once in Jenin on May 11th and the second time in Jerusalem uh, during her funeral on May 13th uh, at the hospital when uh, the funeral was brutally attacked by Israeli paramilitary forces who were uh, armed to teeth. Uh, attacking the mourners, attacking my family, attacking the pallbearers who were carrying the casket. Uh, it was a very disturbing scene. It was very traumatizing, to say the least. I remember we were uh, being pushed. We were being beaten by batons, only because, all because we wanted to, to put our dear aunt to rest. But unfortunately, even during her funeral, she was still being attacked. She was still trying to be silenced. And uh, that was a scene that will forever be entrenched in the minds of all uh, Palestinians and the world. This was something that was uh, not really unprecedented, but something that um, that was just very, very disturbing. It was it was brutal, to say the least. Lena, um, for people who aren't familiar with what happened at the funeral, this was at the time Israel was saying it was Palestinians who had killed uh, Shireen. Um, and what the Israeli military or police did at the funeral, and also the Israeli government saying they had an agreement with Tony, with Shireen's brother. Yeah, so that was, again, part of their way to shift the narratives, to spread this information. Um, before the funeral, they actually summoned my father, Tony, and uh, they tried to put constraints on how we want to mourn Shirin, limiting uh, number of gathers, uh, mourners, uh, putting restrictions on who can access the hospital. But, of course, my father did not agree to anything. We did not have any agreement with them. Uh, we 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 made it clear that this is not just a funeral for our family, but this is a national funeral. Shirin was loved and respected by everyone. Everyone was there to, to mourn her. But from the moment we made our way to the hospital, there were multiple uh, Israeli checkpoints uh, in Jerusalem restricting our access to the hospital. Uh, there was—it felt like actual war zone outside the hospital. Um, when we got into the hospital and we were trying to uh, take the casket into the hearse, um, we were attacked brutally by the Israeli forces, and uh, they were trying to restrict the funeral procession to the church. And it was in that moment where the entire world uh, bared witness to what it's like to be uh, to be living under occupation and have our entire lives uh, controlled. And this is the same army that the U.S. continues to fund annually with four, $4 billion. So the, that day is a moment that is, will never be forgotten. But even on her funeral, my aunt Shirin was still reporting, and she was, her voice was even louder than any other moment in that specific day. We wanted to play um, a montage of Shireen Abu Akleh covering the Middle East. She did it for more than two decades for Al Jazeera. Let's go to some of those reports. 
There have been cases of suffocation. Dozens of Palestinians were injured after the firing of tear gas canisters. This wall inhibits the view, the sun, and communication between Palestinians. Even more importantly, it is threatening their dream of having a geographically continuous nation. It might not be easy for me to change the reality of the situation on the ground, but at least I was able to contribute by helping those voices reach the world. I am Shireen Abu Akleh. Shireen Abu Akleh. She is, was 51 years old, worked for Al Jazeera, a very familiar face and voice to the Arab world. Um, <clears throat> Lena, you're here in the United States. When President Biden visited Israel, your family wanted to meet with him. Um, instead, you were invited to Washington. You met with Tony Blinken, is that right, the Secretary of State? But you're demanding a meeting with President Biden. Can you talk about all that you're demanding and the significance of Chris Van Hollen, the senator from Maryland, uh, not accepting the Israeli report on her death um, and calling for that independent investigation? Yeah, you know, when uh, President Biden was in the Middle East, when he was uh, in Jerusalem specifically, he was 10 minutes away from our house. Uh, from Shirin's house, where she grew, where she was born. Um, but yet he refused to meet with us there. Instead, our family had to come to D.C. Uh, and we, we, we met uh, Secretary Antony Blinken. Um, but we are still calling for a meeting with the, with the U.S. president, with President Biden, because that will show that he is serious about this case and that he is uh, willing to take action. But uh, ever since uh, ever since my aunt was killed, all the statements released by the U.S. Uh, State Department, U.S. administration, has been nothing but empty words followed with no action. And that's why we will continue to demand an investigation, uh, a U.S.-led investigation for the killing of a U.S. citizen, um, because— this is what would have happened if it was any other U.S. citizen killed abroad, and this is what usually happens. And second, because uh, a U.S. investigation will inevitably um, show the same as—will inevitably conclude uh, the same as all reputable or, uh, reports have shown that Shirin was killed, she was targeted by an Israeli soldier, and will help identify this soldier and, and have accountability. Um, again, we are—this is not just about Shirin, but this is about ensuring that no other family, no other family of a, of a U.S. citizen, of Palestinians, have to suffer, have to go through what we have been going through. Therefore, it's so important that the U.S. Uh, opens up an investigation, a transparent investigation, to hold the Israeli soldier accountable, the Israeli army accountable for the killing of Shirin. And this is not our only—we are not the only ones demanding this. But as you stated, uh, we have members of Congress, uh, senators, representatives, all— uh, majority of them are backing our calls. We saw how Senator Van Hollen dismissed the statement. We also saw how uh, Representative Andre Carson as well. He was stating that this is not enough. It falls short of any form of accountability. Real accountability uh, includes holding the soldier who killed Shirin accountable, holding the person who who calls for pulling the trigger, trigger and changing the entire system 
uh, this entire policy that continues to perpetuate violence uh, against Palestinians. Lina Abu Akla, I want to thank you for joining us. Niece of Shireen Abu Akla, of course, we'll continue to cover this story. And again, our condolences to your family. Thank you so much. Next up, in a victory for Trump, a federal judge he appointed has granted his request for a special master to review classified documents the FBI seized at Mar-a-Lago. We'll get response from Ellie Mestel, author of Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Stay with us. <laughs> by Reem Kelani. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We turn now to look at a possible delay by months or even years of the FBI's investigation into whether former President Donald Trump violated the Espionage Act and presidential records laws and whether he obstructed justice to cover up those crimes. The delay comes after a federal judge agreed Monday to appoint an independent arbiter known as a special master to review whether FBI agents properly seized thousands of classified documents from Trump's Mar-a-Lago home on August 8th. U.S. District Court Judge Eileen Cannon agreed with Trump's lawyers that the Justice Department must halt its review of the documents recovered by agents, many of which were marked top secret. The Washington Post reports some of the documents were so sensitive that even many senior national security officials would not normally have access to them. Judge Cannon was nominated to the U.S. District Court for Southern District of Florida in 2020 by then-President Donald Trump. She was confirmed nine days after Trump lost the 2020 election. On Tuesday, former Attorney General William Barr told Fox News the Justice Department should appeal Judge Cannon's decision. Opinion, I think, was wrong, and I think the government should appeal it. Uh, it's deeply flawed in a number of ways. <clears throat> I don't think the appointment of a special uh, master is going to hold up, but even if it does, I don't see it fundamentally changing the trajectory. I, in other words, I don't think it changes the ball game so much as maybe we'll have a rain, uh, rain delay for a couple yeah. of innings. This comes as the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol is set to resume hearings later this month. 
For more, we're joined by Ellie Mistel, the nation's justice correspondent, whose recent piece looking at this and several other investigations into Trump is headlined, Trump is a criminal. Will any of these four investigations snare him? He's also author of the best-selling book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Ellie, welcome back to Democracy Now! Why don't you start off by laying out these four cases um, or investigations into Trump? Because I think many people, there's so much that's happening, it's very hard to, for people to figure out what is going on right now and maybe even why he hasn't been charged. Okay, Amy, let's do this lightning round style. Uh, case number one is the one that you've been talking about. It's the espionage case. Uh, Trump stole documents, um, top secret documents, classified documents from the National Archives, put them in his basement. That is straight up illegal. Um, the Justice Department is investigating him um, for that theft. Uh, uh, doesn't matter if he class declassified the documents or not um, because he had sensitive national defense information. We'll see how that goes um, now that he's got it, gotten it in front of his handpicked justices um, who are biased uh, for him, right? So that's bucket number one. Bucket number two is the one that we've been talking about since uh, January 6, 2020. It's the insurrection that he probably um, should be held responsible for, if not leading, certainly encouraging, right? Um, we have the January 6th committee um, that's investigating that. But we also know that the previous uh, hearings over the summer from the January 6th select committee kind of uh, lit a fire under the Department of Justice, um, um, pointed them in some new directions. We know that the testimony of uh, former uh, White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson um, was particularly uh, explosive. Um, so the Justice Department is arguably uh, continuing an investigation um, into Trump's role in January 6th. Um, and all the little tendrils of that, right? There's the actual coup and insurrection. There's the fake electors plot. There's the obstruction of justice. There's a lot of things wrapped up in January 6th. But those two buckets are at the uh, federal level. At the state level, um, he has more legal exposure. Um, there's the New York State investigation that is um, led by Attorney General, State Attorney General Tish James, that's looking into financial crimes and misdeeds um, from Trump Organization. Uh, they, they have their their you know uh, allegations dating back to Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's former fixer, about Trump uh, devaluing assets when it comes time to pay taxes and inflating assets when it comes time uh, to get a loan. So that investigation is ongoing. And then finally, we have the state of Georgia investigation led by um, Fulton County uh, District Attorney Fannie Willis. Um, she is looking in uh, to Trump's uh, apparent attempt at election fraud and obstruction of justice in Georgia specifically. We've all heard the incriminating phone call, um, Donald Trump asking uh, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger in Georgia to find him 11,000 votes. Um, we know Lindsey Graham has been asked to testify. We also know that the judicial system is protecting Lindsey Graham as well. But we, we know that investigation um, is ongoing. And as you uh, pointed out this morning, um, there's even new evidence uh, in implicating Sidney Powell um, in some stuff. So so that, I think, is, is still maybe the most likely uh, thing to land Trump um, in serious legal trouble, just because we literally already have him on tape committing uh, uh, committing the alleged crime, um, if, if I can say it that way. Um, but those are the four kind of main ones that I know about. Let's let's never forget that you know Trump commits crime like other people breathe, and so those who knows what else um, is lying just beneath the surface. 
those are the four that are kind of most furthest along in terms of investigating um, the former president. Uh, but Ellie, isn't there a danger because, as you mentioned, all of these different investigations, uh, one that it feeds into a narrative uh, by many Trump supporters uh, and, uh, and and even some who may not be that supportive of him, that the government is out to get him. Uh, and also, isn't the issue that all of these investigations and before that, the two impeachments, uh, they keep Trump in the news uh, so that uh, he's uh, he's constantly the story, whether or not he's actually officially uh, running for office and the danger of a backfire uh, come the uh, the next presidential election uh, about these uh, investigations that all operate at a snail's pace because of the ability of anyone with a lot of money to to gum up the works in terms of uh, uh, legal challenges. Uh, your, your thoughts about the potential backfire of so much effort, but no real uh, indictments yet. Yeah, Juan, well, number one, I don't really concern myself with what cultists say in defense of their cult, right? Like, I get that the cult of personality that is Donald Trump creates various false narratives about what's happening and the persecution that's happening to their dear leader, and they're all wrong. They're all dumb and wrong. And so I don't worry myself with what dumb and wrong people think uh, about these investigations. I mean, because we because we can't because we can't live at their speed. Right. We have to, like, do what is right, regardless of what the cultists say. Right. In terms of doing what is right, that's kind of how I get to your second point. Yes, there is a lot of uh, investigations going on. And yes, that creates almost a spigot of potential criminality. But what's the alternative? The, the, the problem here is that Trump potentially committed many, many, many crimes and allowing him to get off scot-free for any of the crimes, much less all of the crimes, is the bigger danger to democracy and to kind of faith in American government. If a person like Trump can get away with uh, uh, stealing an election in Georgia and committing financial crimes in New York and leading an insurrection and um, um, putting forward fake electors and uh, uh, violating the Espionage Act. If he can get away with all of that, then we are not a nation of laws. We are a nation of power. We, we are a nation that exists on the whims of the powerful people and their judges. So it's almost like we have to pick which nation we want to live in. If we want to live in a nation with, of laws, then we have to, it's not an option, then we have to prosecute Trump for the crimes he appears to have committed. There, there is no other uh, um, option that still involves us living in a nation under the rule of law. And speaking of a nation under the rule of law, in your book, allow me to retort, you write about the structural problems of our Constitution uh, that uh, uh, that to, to you raise serious questions about the ability of us, uh, our nation to function as a democracy. I'm wondering if you could talk about some of those structural issues. Well, I think look look at look at what the Trump judge did in in the espionage case, right? Look at Eileen Cannon. Um, the idea that judges are apolitical, impartial arbiters is wrong. It's always been wrong. It's always been a legal fiction. Um, we uh, we we know that judges are political actors. If they weren't, you wouldn't have wildly different judges um, nominated by each of the different political parties, right? We know they're not impartial. 
Um, we we just haven't been been told that because for the most part their 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 bias and their prejudice has been towards white cis hetero male people, right? And so we act like that's not a bias, but that is a bias, and that's kind of baked into the system. And these people are also careerists. People keep saying like, oh, the point of lifetime appointments is that once a judge is in, they don't have to concern themselves with the political machinations of the country. We know that not to be true, right? Judge Eileen Cameron is a district court judge now. Does she want to be a circuit court judge someday? Does she want to be on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals someday? Does she want to be on the Supreme Court someday? Well, if she does, which wouldn't be surprising to me, well, making decisions in concert with the Republican agenda, especially um, given Trump's, again, Svengali-like hold over the Republican Party, seems to make sense. So when you look at the structure of our of our judicial system it is still primarily based on people and those people can be biased those people can be prejudiced those people can be wrong and we don't do nearly enough within our system to hold our judges accountable right there's no um they're they're appointed for life there's no way to remove them absent impeachment like these are real problems that we have um, when you run into clear cases of bias or, un- or unethical behavior, as I believe we're seeing with uh, Judge Cannon. And like, look, well, let's let's remember this. I- I'm suggesting that Cannon is biased and corrupt um, based on her opinion, which has no basis in law. The other option is that she she has no idea what she's doing. And I tend to give her the benefit of the doubt that she actually knows what she's doing and has decided to help Trump as opposed to, to me, what's worse, that she truly kind of honestly doesn't understand how law works. Like, I, I don't think she's dumb. I think she's biased and prejudiced towards Trump. And the reason why I think that is that she said it in her opinion. She literally wrote that she was treating Trump differently because he was the former president, um, um, which is a kind of legal jargony way of saying, look, Juan, if you and I or Amy goes into the National Archives and steals documents, I promise you Judge Eileen Cannon is not slowing down the investigation against us for criminal liability and violations of the Espionage Act. So let's talk about the latest news uh, that NBC is reporting that among those very classified documents are um, perhaps nuclear secrets of another nuclear-armed country, just among the classified documents. But the New York Times reports in her Senate questionnaire—this is Judge Cannon—described uh, herself as having been a member of the Conservative Federalist Society since 2005. And you've done a lot of investigation into this and the power of Leonard Leo now getting $1.6 billion to start a new organization, and how they have populated the courts, not just her court. But if the Department of Justice appeals this to the 11th Court of Appeals, that court, and then, of course, to the Supreme Court, Trump alone got three Federalist Society um, judges on the—justices on the Supreme Court. And in that answer, Ellie, if you can talk about your call for adding more people to the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, so let's start with Leo. If you if if you're keeping tabs on what the the new 1.6 billion dollar man is doing, um, one of the first things he's done with the mummy with the money is file an amicus brief uh, for the upcoming Supreme Court case, um, advancing this bonkers theory of an independent state legislature that is allowed to change election laws without regard to their own state constitution. It's the biggest upcoming case on this in the Supreme Court docket uh, this year because it. De- it essentially will allow, could allow state uh, legislatures, red state legislatures to simply throw away votes they don't like. That's what Leonard Rio is doing with his money. That's what the Federal Society is about. That, that, that's, their, that's their kind of modus operandi um, to infect democracy um, and to take it away from the people and put it behind closed doors. Eileen Cannon, obviously a part of that from her whole career. She wouldn't have been appointed by Trump, um, who doesn't know a lot about judges. He kind of outsourced his, his judicial picks to the Federal Society. She wouldn't have been appointed by Trump without Federal Society um, approval. So that's on the one hand. As you say, Amy, if the Department of Justice appears this um, ruling, which they should, because it's, again, there's no basis in law for it. You go to the 11th Circuit, which is stacked with Trump judges. Then you go to the Supreme Court, which also is stacked with uh, Republican justices. We've seen what they've been willing to do, uh, willing to do to precedent and the rule of law just last term. So there are no good options there. And that's something that I think liberals and progressives need to understand more generally. There is nothing that you can do to get around six conservative justices on the Supreme Court and uh, uh, a Republican justice, just judges stacked up and down through the judicial system. We've already seen with the Biden administration, they will block executive orders. They will uh, issue stays and injunctions against um, moves made by Biden and this Congress, and they will seek to overturn laws passed by this Congress. So we saw last term the Clean Air Act. Yeah, that doesn't really matter to the conservatives on the Supreme Court um, when it comes to regulating um, the environmental um, uh, 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 pollutants in our air. The Supreme Court just basically ignored the Clean Air Act. And that's what they're going to do again if, if by some miracle, uh, um, the Democrats uh, uh, hold on to the House. They'll probably keep the Senate because Republicans have nominated some terrible candidates. Um, and they pass a nationwide uh, abortion rights protection. The Supreme Court will overturn that before breakfast. Like, as long as you let the Republicans control the Supreme Court, there is no progressive agenda. There is no Democratic agenda that gets through these conservatives on the Supreme Court. The only rational play, this is beyond politics, this is beyond reform. The only rational play for any Democratic administration, for any Democratic candidate who wants to get anything done for the next 30 years is to add justices to the Supreme Court. Now, I have a lot of actual reform reasons why why we should add justices. In my book, I talk about how beyond the politics of it, more justices are better. It leads to uh, more moderate decisions because it's harder to get a majority when you have more people. It leads to my divorce, more diversity, more diversity of thought, and to say nothing of racial, eth- ethnic, and gender diversity. There are lots of good reform reasons to add more justices to the Supreme Court. Um, but as a practical political matter, um, if Democrats want their agenda to be upheld, they need to um, counteract the power of conservative justices that have been set in there specifically um, to put a stop to the uh, to, to progress to the not just the progressive agenda in terms of left right, a stop to progress 
to bring us back to, as Sam Alito did in the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade, bring us back to a time when women were not considered full citizens and full people. Like that is the goal of the conservatives on the Supreme Court. And as long as we let them have power, that is what they will be doing. Uh, Ellie, I wanted to ask you, we only have about, about a minute or two, but uh, voting rights, uh, The considering all of the state efforts in the past uh, few years to limit and restrict uh, voting uh, across the country, uh, your concerns about what's going to happen in the upcoming election and, of course, in the presidential election in a couple of years, uh, in terms of the ability of the majority of the American people to uh, elect representatives that represent them. Yeah, so this goes back to Chief Justice John Roberts on the Supreme Court. John Roberts has been an enemy of voting rights and specifically an enemy of black people voting for his entire career. His first real job out of school um, was to work against the 1982 amendments to the Voting Rights Act. He gutted um, the vo- Section 5 of the Ro- Voting Rights Act in 2013's Shelby County v. Holder, and he was part of the majority that gutted Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act um, in 2021's Brnovich v. Arizona. John Roberts is the real bad guy here when it comes to voting. Now, how does that play out on the ground? Well, one thing that I've learned, you know, my mother is— was born in 1950 in Mississippi, so my, my, my people go back a long way on this. One thing I've learned in my travels is that when you tell people they can't vote, that makes them want to vote more. And so there is the, the, the opportunity, the possibility that all of the efforts to suppress the vote backfire um, on people who have been historically um, um, challenged in their, their ability to vote. Um, it, it, could, it could lead to a higher, um, a more dedication to go out and have that right um, that, uh, that, that people are, 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 that Republicans are so desperately trying to take away. But that's where this uh, critical uh, Supreme Court case, Moore v. Harper, um, that I've been talking about comes into play. This independent state legislature theory, this Leonard Leo ploy that would allow states to throw away votes that have already been duly cast and counted. So Republicans are both trying to suppress the vote. And if that doesn't work, trying to put themselves in a position where they can overturn the vote and throw away votes they don't like. We are in a crisis of democracy. We are not approaching a constitutional crisis. The crisis is upon us. And the question is, what do we do about it? Ellie Mistal, we're going to have you back on to talk more about what we do about it and your book, Nation's Justice Correspondent, author of the best-selling book, Allow Me to Retort, A Black Guy's Guide to the Constitution. Next up, we continue to remember the life and legacy of author, activist Barbara Ehrenreich. Back in 30 seconds. Oh, my mama told me Cause she says she learned the hard way Says she wanna spare the children She say don't give a say your soul away Cause all that you have is your soul Don't be tempted by the shiny apple Don't you eat of a bitter fruit 
Hunger only for a taste of justice. All that you have is your soul by Tracy Chapman, the late journalist Barbara Ehrenreich, who we'll talk about next, wrote in her book Nickel and Dimed. I finish up every night at 10 or 10.30, depending on how much side work I've been able to get done during the shift, and cruise home to the tapes I snatched at random when I left my real home. Marianne Faithful, Tracy Chapman, Enigma, King Sunny a Day, Violent Femmes, just drained enough for the music to set my cranium resonating, but hardly dead. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. We end today's show continuing to remember the life and legacy of the author and activist Barbara Ehrenreich, who died this weekend at the age of 81. She wrote more than 20 books, including her best-known Nickel and Dimed on Not Getting By in America, for which she went undercover as a low-income worker. This is an excerpt of a 2006 address by Barbara. She gave it at the 20th anniversary of the Media Watch Group FAIR—that's Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. She was in Cooper Union's historic Great Hall. But I think the real issue here is the mainstream media's, corporate media's theory of poverty, which they can't help but come back to, is that it is a character failure. It is manifested by laziness or promiscuity or addiction or something. Well, there's an alternative theory of poverty that some of us have been trying to get across, which is that it's not a character flaw, it is a lack of money. <laughs> and I think, um, you know, and that it's caused, you know, ultimately by the pathetically low wages so many Americans earn. That is Barbara Ehrenreich in 2006. Again, in Nickel and Dime, she went and worked at Walmart. She was a waitress um, and had other jobs. She later founded the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which is still going strong. For more, we're joined by its executive director, Alyssa Court, Barbara's close friend and colleague. Welcome to Democracy Now! First off, Alyssa, our deepest condolences uh, to you, to Ben Ehrenreich, um, um, uh, Barbara's son, um, for this, the loss of this remarkable woman. Thank you so much, Amy. It has been really devastating. We loved her very much, but we hope to continue the fight in her name. So talk about um, what the Economic Hardship Reporting Project is. Talk about what it means to report on poverty and what is lacking in the corporate media. So Barbara once wrote, in America, only the rich can afford to write about poverty. And so that's, that meant you had in the 90s and the noughts, uh, columnists and pundits tossing off columns about uh, dead, so-called deadbeat dads detached, you know, from their second homes, right? Uh, what she wanted was she wanted to see people who were up close to the experience, who had themselves either had grown up working poor or were still working in factories and were professional journalists as well. As, and also she wanted to see professional journalists spend weeks, months, years reporting from the front lines of economic jeopardy. So that is what the economic hardship reporting project does, we give people grants and we give them editorial support so they can continue in this legacy. And uh, could you talk also about—I mentioned in our show yesterday that uh, Barbara started working really as an uh, 
uh, as a, a critic and analyst of the health industry in America and the enormous profit drive of our health industry, uh, I'm wondering your conversations that you had with her in recent years about uh, the impact of our health system on the poor. Well, yeah, I mean, she was again, she thought, you know, debt caused by health expenses was another way that uh, stigma was put onto poor people that should have gone uh, into creating a better structure system of care for all. And so that was just it was another place. And also, honestly, her own journey through health care in her later years, you know, she'd say things to me. She was very funny, like. The, ba- the thing about getting old is doctor's offices are just so boring. <laughs> um, you can't underestimate her humor uh, about herself and uh, the world at large. And she, uh, most people are not aware she was a democratic socialist. I'm wondering your, your, thought, uh, your thoughts about yes. her legacy in terms of the work that she did over the years uh, uh, on behalf of working people in America. Yeah, I think it's really important to think Uh, of her as a journalist and an activist. She didn't necessarily see the bright line that other kind of so-called great journalists (laughs) tend to see, right? That in the mainstream media, you're not supposed to have a a take or an opinion or a voice. She thought the the opposite was true, that you needed to have people who were able to speak truth to power, contributing to uh, all of the conversations. So her, she was co-chair, actually, of the DSA in early years. And it's really important to recognize that. She was also part of women's movements, labor's, labor movements. Yeah, she felt they went hand in hand with the kind of critical writing she did. They were not uh, separate entities. So as we deal with inflation, as we deal with more and more homelessness in this country, increased poverty, um, the ways that Barbara felt this had to be addressed, I mean, that classic quote, it's not about being poor is not about like a lack of morality, it's about a lack of money, um, and humanizing the face of it and then challenging it. Right. So she, she had another amazing quote, again, with such wit, money does not bring happiness, only the wherewithal, perhaps, to endure its absence. She, she understood that on a basic level, people just needed higher wages and more, more money, basically. And, and to, to make this into a moral or personal uh, vendetta against the poor was an obscenity. And she dedicated much of her life to creating media around that. And in our work in the Economic Hardship Reporting Project to bringing, uh, at this point, probably thousands of people, including working poor people, uh, back into the fold, teaching her methods. Could you could you talk about some of the bi- the big stories that have come out of the of the project uh, since uh, uh, Barbara founded it? Yeah, I mean, I can also talk about some of the ones she was most proud of because they're now at the front of my mind as I'm sort of mourning. One of them was uh, a, a writer Daryl Wellington who sold his own plasma, and so he wrote about that experience of selling his own plasma and then widened it out to the plasma industry. Um, there's a writer who wrote a, who herself is financially uh, insecure who wrote about taking in an unhoused couple. Uh, as part of a social program, uh, kind of an NGO program, and what that meant. And 
her own phobias and her own experience of that. So I feel like these are some of the stories that I'm most proud of because they have the ring of truth and the intensity of human experience coupled with an understanding, like how do we destigmatize unhoused people? Oh, maybe we need to spend some time with them. <laughs> um, and also both of those stories had a sort of dark humor that was her signature. Her last book, in fact, was about dying, wasn't it, Alyssa? We have about 10 seconds. Yeah, it was about dying. And I, I think the profound takeaway for me from that was that each of our deaths is part of a broader social struggle. Um, and the saga will continue after we go. That book was called Natural Causes, and, of course, the one she is most famous for, Nickel and Dimed. Alyssa Court, friend and colleague of Barbara Ehrenreich, again, our um, condolences and as well to Ben Ehrenreich, her son, and to Rosa Brooks, her daughter, um, and to so many others who cherished her, her whole family. Uh, Alyssa Court, executive director of Economic Hardship Reporting Project. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Stay safe. Be brave.